the sixth commandment. It says this, you shall not murder. And now, if you'll turn forward with me to Matthew chapter 5. Again, that's on page 810 of your pew Bible. And this is where Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount, and he's preaching to Pharisees, he's preaching to his disciples, he's preaching to all sorts of people, and they know what the Sixth Commandment is. They've heard it before, but this is what Jesus has to say about this commandment, beginning in Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Amen. And this is God's word to us this morning, a hard word to hear. This is tough. It cuts to the core of our being. Because all of us are angry. To one extent or another, that's the case. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not angry. What's he talking about? Well, I rest my case. Because all of us have that sense of anger that all it takes is someone or some circumstance or or some person to come into our lives to bring that up to the surface because it's bubbling underneath all of that. It's probably one of the main issues that is messing up your marriage right now. Anger is one of the reasons why you can't get along with your parents and why you have such a hard time getting along with your children and why most of your relationships, many of your relationships, are in some sort of state of flux. There's some sort of lack of reconciliation that's going on there. Part of the reason why is because of our anger. And when you read in Matthew 5, one of the things that you discover is that the root of all murder, which is what this is all about in the first place, the root of all murder is anger. Anger is what drives it. All actual murder, all failure to protect life, or all actual taking of someone's life comes to pass because of unresolved anger that exists within our lives. But I think to just zero in on anger alone is actually kind of missing the point. Because anger is what comes out when something much deeper underneath us is going on. Because when we personally experience some kind of loss, or in some way we're wounded, we we experience some kind of hurt, or something happens in our life that makes us sad, or something in our life happens that makes us afraid, all of those things oftentimes come out in the form of anger. That's the way they manifest themselves. So let me explain what I mean by this. When your husband or your wife, for instance, fails to do something that they said that they would do, they fail to keep their word, what does that do to you? It wounds you. It's hurtful. And you become afraid that you can't trust him or her 
to do what they'll say anymore. You, you, you can't trust them, and you don't have any reason to believe that next time you ask him to do something that he's actually going to follow through. So there's a, there's a fear. There's a lack of stability, a lack of security going on in your life. And there's also a sadness that hits you. The sadness crops up because you've lost the ideal. I mean, your ideal spouse or your ideal relationship with anybody, for instance, is that they're not going to let you down. And yet you've been let down. And so there's a, there's a sadness, there's a grief that, that comes out in some respect. There's a loss because you don't have what you deeply told yourself that you want and that maybe you've told yourself that you actually deserve. And so rising out of that comes criticism, doesn't it? It, it comes by holding your spouse or holding your friend or your neighbor, whoever it is, in contempt. It comes out in, in your defensiveness and and in your complete shutdown, where you'll give people the silent treatment. That's the way that anger manifests itself. And anger is our hopeless attempt to order our private world. That's the way in which we try to get control over our circumstances. And if it wasn't the case, then we wouldn't be angry about it. But that's our attempt to get our world in order. And here's the point. Here's, here's where I think that Jesus is going, and here's what I think the point of the Sixth Commandment is. Murder, like any other sin, is fundamentally an issue of the heart. It, it's fundamentally an, is, an issue of the heart. Sin is much less an issue of, a, of an external action than it is an internal, inward disposition of the heart. And I would suggest to you that that's the very issue that Jesus is trying to get the disciples to see here and the Pharisees to see here in chapter 5 of Matthew. One of the things that the Pharisees hated about Jesus is that he wasn't a fundamentalist. They didn't like that about him. They, didn't, they thought that Jesus was irreverent and lawless because he didn't abide by the Pharisees' self-manufactured words and, and, and rules. And that should tell you a little bit about the gospel-centered life, shouldn't it? Because irreligious people are always going to call you a closed-minded, bigoted person because you don't believe that morality and truth are things that are just socially constructed. You don't believe that those are things that we make up as we go along in life. They're going to call you intolerant because you actually do believe in moral absolutes. You believe that there is an actual truth that's not manufactured in individuals and in cultures, but it's found in God. And because it's found in God, it's something that transcends time and it transcends culture. So that's what you're going to get from the irreligious people on one side. But from the super-religious, fundamentalist, moralist, Pharisee types you're going to get called licentious because good Christian people aren't supposed to listen to certain types of music and hang out with certain types of people and, and be engaged in certain aspects of culture. That's not what good Christians do. And then people who want to take the moderate middle ground, which are, are really people who are more concerned just about improving their quality of life than anything else, they're going to think that you're strange because you actually do have convictions. And you live according to those convictions with some sense of zeal. You know, Jesus, his closest friends thought he was a, a person who had abandoned all common sense. 
He was someone who had such a zeal for his father's glory that his closest people in his life thought that he had gone to the loony bin and his enemies thought he was full of a demon. Well, welcome to the Christian life, my friends. That's the way that it very often works. He, Jesus was criticized by the religious white, the, uh, the, the religious right, for embracing white-collar criminals and prostitutes and other undesirable people. And the people on the religious left hated him because he said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And the moderates thought he was crazy. So on every front, Jesus was criticized. But that is because those people did not understand the gospel. And they didn't understand how the gospel intersected with their real life. Because the gospel tells you that it's not so much your external behavior that alienates you from God, it's your heart. Jeremiah said this, he said, The heart is deceitful above some things. No, he said, the heart is deceitful above all things. He's trying to get us to see something. That there's something crooked within our hearts. There's something ugly within our hearts. Something depraved that's there. And so when Jesus starts talking about murder with the disciples and the Pharisees here, he's saying that, yes, you'll probably make it all the way to the end of your life without actually killing anybody, but you're still guilty of murder. And the reason why you and I are still guilty of murder is because we have this deep-seated anger in our hearts towards someone that has left us estranged and left us alienated. You know, when you you look back to verse 20, just one verse back from what we read this morning, look at what Jesus says here. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. My friends, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most moral people around. They had their act together on the outside. See, the the scribes and the Pharisees were all about keeping the external rules. They made those rules the foundation of their life, and they were good at keeping them. They were moral, upright, upstanding citizens who were in church all the time and doing a lot of the right things on the outside, But their hearts were crooked, their hearts were depraved. And there are certain sins that they didn't want to confront. See, the Pharisees were were not actually that concerned about keeping the law. They were concerned about what they could get away with and still appear to keep the law. So they majored in the the no killing and the, and the... the Sabbath commands and all that sort of thing, but you very rarely hear the the Pharisees talking about things like anger or gossip or greed. Because things like anger and gossip and greed are issues of the heart that just are going to spill over to some extent. And they completely ignore those things. That's why Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the scribes and the Pharisees had corrupt hearts, rebellious hearts, and it's just like our hearts. And instead of recognizing that, instead of recognizing that, 
it wasn't so much their actions but their hearts that alienated them from God. What they did is they brought their good moral works before him. They said, look at the good things that I've done. Look at the bad things that I've avoided. And at the end of the road, they didn't come any closer to inheriting the kingdom of heaven than the most immoral nutcase in town. They were just as far away. It's a deadly serious issue. Look at verse 22 that we just read in Matthew 5. Jesus says here that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, so much for gentle Jesus, meek and mild there, right? That's a harsh word. Here's what you need to understand that Jesus is saying here. Many of you may have read this passage in other versions of the Bible, the New American Standard Bible or something like that, and you come across the word insults. In those versions... The word insults is left untranslated. It's actually the word raka. And it doesn't, it's, it, raka is an insult, but it doesn't actually mean to insult. What it actually means is that you're saying to the person that they are empty headed, that, that, that basically they're an idiot and they are a clueless jerk compared to you. And to call someone a fool is along the same lines. It's to think that they're foolish, that they're careless, that they're some kind of ignorant doofus in comparison to you. And when you have those sentiments, or you even say those things about people, it stems from a heart that is pointing their finger in their chest and saying that you have failed to justify yourself before me. That's what our anger is saying. And it's ugly in your anger towards others. And the way in which we're angry, in our bitterness and, and grudge holding that seems to fester there for hours or days or, or months or years, in our anger towards other people, what we are in essence doing is putting ourself on God's throne and asking other people to justify themselves before us on the basis of their merits. And that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. We ought to be wildly thankful that Jesus does not engage with us like that. Because we would be utterly hopeless if we had to stand before him and justify ourselves on the basis of how well we were doing. You know, I think the biggest problem with giving someone hell is that we actually give ourselves a bigger hell because of it. You know, when, when we give it to someone, it actually, it, it actually causes us to self-destruct, at least in the short term. And it may be indicative of a heart that, that's outwardly giving lip service to God, but inwardly could care less. And my friends, that's a hell of a much greater sort. I think there's another thing about anger here that Jesus wants us to see. And I think he wants us to see how we're to go about dealing with this relationally. How we, how we handle this issue of anger in our personal relationships with people. And what he says here is that if 
we're about ready to bring something before God. We're about ready to worship him, obey him, something along those lines. And we realize that there's someone in the church, in the redeemed community, who has something against us, then before we do anything else, before we offer that sacrifice or we offer that act of obedience, what we're called to do is go and attempt to be reconciled to that person. That's what he's saying here. And, and I think that's a totally countercultural way of understanding how to do relationship. You know, if you, if you were to look forward to Matthew chapter 18... One of the things that you'll discover in Matthew 18 is that if you are angry with your brother or sister, if you're angry with someone in your life, your your spouse, your parents, your, your friends, whoever else, if you're angry with someone, then as far as it depends upon you, you're to go and to seek reconciliation with that person. But here what Jesus is saying is the opposite. He's saying that if someone that you know about is angry with you, then you're still responsible to go seek reconciliation. The, The point is whether you're the plaintiff or the defendant, whether you're the person who's committed the sin or the one who's been sinned against, and there's something in the relationship that's strained, you don't wait around. You make the first move to go and seek reconciliation. And you don't make it a third tier issue that you get around to once you don't have anything else to do. Jesus is almost saying here, it seems like, that before any other act of worship that you do, what you need to do is go and seek an attempt, at least, to be reconciled to that person. You know, one of the things that that we started doing here at this church maybe like six months ago or so, was that we moved the offering to after the sermon. And the reason why we did that was not to to be some kind of manipulative ploy to get you to give more money or, or to help me measure the effectiveness of the sermon on the basis of how much we got in the offering that day. I mean, I don't, after the service, go in there and find out how much we got and go, man, that must have been a real whopper today. Uh, that's, That's not the way that I judge the sermon. We did that because we thought that in terms of the order of the service, that giving over God's tithes and our offerings is an appropriate response to having the word of God brought to bear upon our life. But here's the deal, my friends. What if in response to the word of God coming to bear upon our lives we realize that we have an axe to grind against someone here in this church. Or we we realize that someone has something against us. And what if we said, before I give anything to the Lord, or I make any other move in my life, what I'm going to do is I'm going to move towards that person from whom I'm estranged, that that person where there's this rift in my life, and I'm going to seek to be reconciled to that person. What if we did that here at First Press? That would be pretty unusual, wouldn't it? That's not something that you ordinarily see happening in the church, but I wonder if that's what God may be calling you to do. To, to face the conflict rather than just hoping that it vanishes into thin air. To, to seek reconciliation in a way that somehow resembles the way that God in Christ has come and sought reconciliation with you. See, 
there's no guarantee that the reconciliation is going to take place, and there's no guarantee that if it does take place, that it's going to happen immediately. That's the reality in a world that's fallen and broken, and, and you have relationship between two broken, sinful people. But what Paul reminds us of in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, that as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. As far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Seek peace with that person. I think it goes without saying that Jesus here is placing a, an exceptionally high priority upon reconciliation. And it kind of makes you wonder why. I mean, why, why before I put anything into the offering plate or before I do any act of worship should I leave that all behind and go and seek reconciliation with someone who doesn't even like me and who I don't even like? Well, you know, why should I do that? Because, my friends, reconciliation is at the very heart of the gospel. The, the, the heart of the gospel is about reconciliation. You see it in Ephesians 2. Paul is talking about this. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. They hated each other. They didn't want to have anything to do with each other. They were disinterested in each other. But what happens is Jesus comes. And certain groups of Jews and certain groups of Gentiles come to see the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of what he's done, and they repent of their sins, and they entrust themselves into Christ, and lo and behold, you've got two different groups of people who didn't like each other, but now they're in the same family. And what Paul says is that in the gospel, what Jesus has done is he has broken down the wall of hostility and established peace. He's done that not only between you and I as individuals and himself, but he's saying that the gospel does that between us as people living in relationship with one another in the local church and in our families and in our communities of, of people who know Jesus Christ. And the point is that the blood of Christ has not only availed for you, but it's also availed for your brother or your sister in Christ from whom you are estranged. And it's antithetical to the gospel to hold a grudge, to hold them in contempt, to remain bitter and cold and callous, and to fail to seek out reconciliation with them. In fact, one of the things we see the Apostle John say in 1 John chapter 3, he says this, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Friends, I think, I think you're lying to yourself if, if you and I say, I don't hate Joe Schmo. I just don't like him. I really don't want to have anything to do with him. That's not true. At the bottom of your heart, there may very well be a hatred that you have for some other brother or sister in Christ, whether it takes the form of a skull and crossbones tantrum or whether it takes a very passive just avoidance of that person where you pretend that they do not exist. See, whether or not reconciliation ever happens 
the love of Christ compels you to go seek it out with them. Just as Jesus has come and he has sought out reconciliation with you and with me. See, the gospel tells you something here about this. It tells you that you and I were entirely at fault and yet Jesus came and sought reconciliation with us. The the alienation that we had from Christ was 100% our fault and 0% His. And yet in the midst of that, He comes to us in grace, He seeks us out, He absorbs the way that we have offended Him, and He doesn't hold it as a grudge over us or as leverage against us. He reconciles us to Himself. Friends, that's the, that's the gospel in a nutshell. That, that's the gospel in a nutshell. It's all about grace. It's all about His forgiveness to us. And it's all ours. When we stop trusting in our outward performance, and we start trusting that, well, I haven't killed anybody. And we start looking inside, and we start trusting in God's work for us in Christ. And friends, that ought, to, that ought to bring about a change in your relationships. That ought to bring about a change in your marriage. You ought to change the way you relate to friends at school and at work and, and in your life. Because whenever there's conflict, it is almost never the case, it's almost never the case that it is all 100% one person's fault and 0% another person's fault. That almost never happens. In fact, the only case that I can think of is the one where I just mentioned, where all of our, the, 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 the estrangement in the relationship between us and Christ is our fault. And yet Jesus comes and absorbs it all for us and pays our debt. But that's the only case I can think of. Because in relationship, it's more complex than that, and, and the fault goes both ways, at least to some extent. You know, I think a lot of us feel like God sent certain people into our lives for the specific purpose of messing it up. You know, they, they got the catechism question. What is the chief end of man? To make your life as miserable as possible. That, that's what they thought that the answer was. And so we have those people in our lives, and, and we feel completely innocent in the matter so often. And, and when we feel like that, when we live like that, that's just a remarkably horrible position to be in. It's remarkably powerless. It's, 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 it's going through life feeling like, gosh, just evil just happens to me. I'm just walking around, minding my own business, and all of a sudden, certain people come into my life and they just mess it up. Unprovoked. It just, it just happened. I don't know how it got there. And so they just went nuts, and, and it aroused my anger. I mean, that's just the way that it is. Well, if that's the way that you think, my friends, then, then, then that's an awful place to be. It's a remarkably powerless place to be because you're saying there's nothing that I can do. I have no responsibility here. But friends, that's almost never the case. Reconciliation only comes when you can humble yourself to the point where you're taking ownership for your responsibility in the fractured relationship. It comes when you can slow down a bit and reflect 
on the ways in which you have failed to love that person, even if you're just 2% at fault in the whole thing. See, taking responsibility for your sin, it puts you in a powerful position. It puts you in the position to be able to say, I was wrong. I need to change. And by the grace of God and by dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit, next time I'll do it differently. I'll live differently with that person in a way that expresses love rather than spitefulness towards them. Let me just briefly, before we end here, switch gears just a little bit. Because it seems like thus far that that anger is just a, a, a certifiable, sinful, wrong, ugly thing to have in our lives. But it kind of begs the question, is it, is it ever okay to be angry? Is it ever justified to be angry? Paul says this, Ephesians 6, 4.26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. It, it seems like there he's saying that it, it was, it, there are not only times when anger is acceptable, but there are times when it would actually be wrong not to be angry. Where it would actually be wrong. There's, there's a bumper sticker that people from Berkeley put on the back of their Toyota Prius. And it says, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. There might be some gaps in that bumper sticker, but by and large it's true. There are some things that we should be certifiably outraged at. We should be angry at injustice. There's something wrong if we're not angry at injustice. And I'm not talking about not getting your way. What I'm talking about is when something completely unfair and completely wrong and completely unjust is done towards someone. You know, a a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the issues of, of racism and abortion. How those are colossal injustices going on in our society. And they're not only going on out there, but they're part of our life together as a church. That's something that we should be angry about. See, part of the command here not to murder is also a positive command. The the positive command is to fight for the well-being of our neighbor, to to live with people in ways that do not do them harm and and to fight for their good and to not be ambivalent towards those things. Part of the call to not murder is to protect one another, to protect people against all types of forms of injustice. And sometimes that means sticking our neck out there, taking the risk, and speaking up for them. Friends, if if you cannot be angry when a friend of yours at school is bullied or a person in your life is gossiped about or belittled or, or teased to the point to where they're virtually dehumanized, then you're actually part of the problem. If you can't be angry when so-called Christian pastors pervert the gospel into making Christianity some sort of self-help program or some list of rules to follow, or they deny that the only way that we can stand before God is by His grace alone, given to us, received through faith alone. when When that sort of thing gets denied, if that doesn't make you angry then there's some kind of problem. And if you can't be angry with gossip and grudge holding and bitterness in the church, then there's some kind of problem. Because if you're a person who can't be angry with 
injustice and untruth, then you're a person who cannot love. And the reason why I say that is that a God who cannot be angry is also a God who cannot love. Friends, to to look at the Bible and say that, that God doesn't ever get angry, that is an unbiblical view of God. Because the cross tells you that God was supremely angry. It tells you that He was supremely angry, that His anger against your sin and my sin was white hot and unmitigated because it was such a gross, vile violation of His holiness and His commands that He places upon us. And to not punish it would to make Him unjust. And what kind of God is an unjust God? I mean, I, I don't have any time for that. Who has time for a God who's unjust? But friends, that's not the God that we have. We have a God whose anger burned so severely against your sin and my sin that He punished it once and for all. He, he punished it. It's, it's the counterintuitive thing about the Gospel that He punishes it not in us, but He punishes it in Himself. We are totally responsible for our sin, yet Jesus comes and He takes total responsibility for it. And He gives us His holiness and His righteousness. And that's why you can know when you entrust yourself to Him that your righteousness does indeed surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Not because of your actions, but because of Jesus' actions for you. That's good news, my friends. There's a fancy theological word for this. You want to know what it is? It's called forgiveness. It's what you get in the gospel. It's what you get when you stop looking at the fact that you're basically a good person who hasn't murdered anyone. And you start looking to him alone for his grace and his mercy and his hope and for reconciliation. And when you believe in him, you can bank on the fact that he does not look at you with a scowl on his face and his arms crossed and his foot tapping with a disposition of anger towards you. That anger happened and Jesus endured it in your place. And that means that he looks at you with his face smiling, his arms open, his his, his embrace available for you. And when you start to get that, my friends, that's when you learn to be able to forgive your enemy, to love your enemy, to forgive just as you have been forgiven. It, it allows you to stop living in relationship with people from the posture that they owe you something and you're going to keep coming back to them until you get it. And it allows you to absorb the debt that they owe you and to let it go. Just like Jesus absorbed your debt and he remembers it no more. That's good news. Let's think about that now as we come before him in prayer. Father, this is a convicting word
a challenging word because it's something that affects every single person here in such acute ways. We all have some semblance of anger in our life, something just waiting to come along to bring it out of us, to expose that our, that our hearts in very many ways are, are built upon getting, a, getting what we've told ourselves that we deserve rather than delighting in you. Father, cause us to be people that don't forget your repentance, that your, your forgiveness to us, that, that never forget that forgiveness and what it costs. And let your forgiveness be so front and center in our lives that it causes us to live with people in ways that seek reconciliation and ways where we live forgiving lives towards them as well. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.